1: Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. This episode and the next couple episodes we will be talking about global warming or climate change, as it's fashionable to call the issue these days. And I'll jump right in today because we have a, a long, but I think very exciting discussion that I just recorded between me and uh, Dr. Eric Dennis, who's a senior fellow at CIP, uh, physicist, also economist, so always brings a lot of I think, brilliant insights to the table. And we'll be talking about the recent report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, uh, the, it's called AR5, the Assessment Report 5. And there's a lot of controversy surrounding it. And uh, we make some points that I don't think you've heard before. So stay tuned, and I'll talk to you on the other side.
0: Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Joining
2: us now on Power Hour is an ever-favorite guest, senior fellow at CIP, uh, Dr. Eric Dennis. Eric, welcome to Power Hour.
0: Thank you. Great to be here.
2: All right. So we're going to talk about IPCC AR5. Um, and we've, we've discussed IPCC with you a little bit and some other people Um on the show. But let's let's just step back. What kind of body is IPCC? Because I think normally I'm looking at this issue of Rolling Stone, which I, I was featured in as a climate denier, and it says on the front, final proof, United Nations Climate Report. And I think the IPCC is essentially viewed as, as something of a science unto itself. It's just all the scientists in the world get together, and then this summarizes a unanimous conclusion on all weather and climate-related issues, and it happens to be that we're headed... Uh, toward catastrophe. So what, what actually is the IPCC?
0: Well, yeah, first, so it might be helpful to uh, to give its full name, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on, on Climate Change. Um, and then this thing called AR5 is the fifth assessment report. So it's the, the latest report to come out um, that's kind of a summary that's supposed to be a summary of scientific development uh, on climate science. And the last one that came out with it was in 2007. So they only come out Occasionally, and they're kind of big documents because of all the stored up interest over the years. So, I mean, what it really is, is it's kind of a hierarchical bureaucracy of scientists and, and bureaucrats and, and kind of, you know, political types who get together and on some low level, on the lowest level, they have the kind of the, 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 um, kind of working scientists who, uh, are Producing a lot of the literature that gets published, uh, um, and there's some, you know, set of levels of bureaucracy above them by which the the kind of the guys on the ground, or at least part of the guys on the ground, uh, their statements and claims and tests and papers get filtered up into the bureaucracy, uh, and some kind of overarching themes are formed, and then the, there's this uh, final process where they they uh, Assimilate uh, all of the the lower lower level reports, and they write this thing called the Summary for Policymakers, which is supposed to distill um, what these uh, you know what these scientists have learned over the last couple of years. But the the essential thing here is that it's this is a highly bureaucratic process that is not some kind of objective sociological study on what. All the people who uh, who do climate science on what they believe—it's uh, an institutional process that um, is, you know, controlled by uh, uh, ultimately, uh, you know, people associated with um, government-funded, national government-funded uh, climate research projects, and they get together and they 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 produce this report.
2: Um. So I guess I'm thinking about it. There's a different angle that, that's occurring to me, and I'm looking at, at the UN at the IPCC's charter. And it says, the role of the IPCC is to assess on a comprehensive, objective, open, and transparent basis, and here we go, the scientific, technical, and socioeconomic information relevant to understanding the scientific basis of risk of human-induced climate change's potential impacts and options for adaptation and mitigation. So this, this is an organization that is... It's not studying the climate. This is an organization designed to pursue uh, and further a given theory. And then if we look at the history behind it, there's a very particular movement that arose um, promoting it. It's not as if just in climate science, everyone came to this conclusion and it was argued for and it won out and it just became like E equals MC squared. It was just a very definite movement of activists, and in some ways it resembles the eugenics movement. It's not like everyone agreed that uh, on this political movement that you should persecute people on the basis of genes, but there were a group of activists, and they claimed science, and they started these organizations. Uh, But it just seems like a fundamentally different thing, a political movement versus a scientific field.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, there is a... You know, quasi-scientific field of, of climate research, but whenever it's put uh, under the, the control of one of these kind of bureaucratic bodies, there are all kinds of different incentives that come into play, and there's it's it's a well observed phenomenon that there's a certain type of uh, scientists, or some of them aren't even scientists of like uh, science type, one could say that. There's a certain type or mentality that rises in an organization like that, um, and it's it's usually the one that has some kind of activist or ideological agenda.
2: But the reason I'm, I'm pushing on this, I was just thinking about it this this morning, is because there's there's this view that that we've talked about, and in fact, you have a chapter in Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet on this. That well, how is it possible for everyone to be wrong? And there is no such situation of everyone is wrong. There's a political movement that is extremely good at, um, you know, that that can cite certain scientists and reports on its behalf, that invests a lot of money in its particular theory, that has certain relationships with the media. And the phenomenon that's happened is there has been no massive political movement or intellectual movement to oppose it. But that's a different phenomenon than everybody agreeing. It, It can be there it's you know, as a scientist it's one thing if, if it's just completely open to say, Hey, I disagree with this versus if there's this political tsunami for it takes a lot for a scientist to stand up and say, No, I com I I disagree with this, I disagree with your conclusions, you're screw you're messing up the science. It's just a completely overwhelming thing. So I, I visualize it now a little bit differently as there's this there's the tsunami of a movement and it's using the mantle of science, but it in no way resembles um, a fundamentally persuasive
0: movement. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's definitely accurate. And, and you can see, I mean, one indication of this is how this larger group of people treat scientists who are dissenters. Um, they're vilified. I mean, they're, they're actively made into pariahs, guys like Lindzen uh, or Roy Spencer uh, or Pat Michaels. I mean, these guys are, are kind of spat upon by uh, by their would-be colleagues it's it's not it's not a system that wants uh, disagreement or, or wants uh, you know diversity in views it's it, it, it has one view locked in and it it set up these stakes where you're either with us or you're against us
2: so- Your background is in physics, and I think a lot of times people think every science is like physics, or at least like the best understood uh, sorts of physics. What is the actual state of climate science with regard to the, the types of questions that this is claiming certainty on, such as namely the future of the climate
0: and its impact on human life? Uh, you, you, uh, are, are you asking, should I assess kind of the level of certainty or compare it to... Like, yeah, the, the you know?
2: level of certainty compared to physics, because then I want to get into AR5 and how AR5 portrays
0: the situation. Sure. Well, well, I mean, a couple of these guys have have come up and said that the theory of kind of catastrophic man-caused global warming is on par with other major scientific theories, like the theory of evolution, or you know, the theory of relativity, or something like that. Um, th- that's a total disservice to what science has done over the past 300 years. I mean, there are some really fascinating aspects of nature that we've uncovered, and we've had uh, many, many independent, real, genuinely independent tests of these theories, and from many different lines of evidence, and we've discovered exciting things. But uh, the the distinguishing characteristic of theories of climate change put forward by people in these institutions is precisely that there are such a paucity of independent uh, tests that they've applied to their theories. And so it's absolutely ludicrous to put them in, uh, in the same category as something like relativity. Which has been tested in so many different ways in so many different contexts, um, that it, it's it, and I, I view it almost as insulting to the not almost it is insulting to uh, to you know great scientists of the past who really discovered fascinating things about the uh, uh, fascinating things about the world. This is not a discovery; it's something shoehorned into a, a kind of a, a slot that people already had in their minds about. Some kind of scientific development that they wanted to occur
2: let's make that a little bit more concrete what's the, what's the contrast uh, between you know a major test in physics and then the test that would need the te- the the test that would need to be met by somebody predicting climate that hasn't been met
0: sure well let's take just a, a canonical example in physics so the um, the first major test of the theory of relativity, in a certain sense, it was a post-diction. So it had already been observed for a number of years that there was a perturbation, a very regular perturbation in the orbit of the planet Mercury. Um, and Einstein, when he first came up with relativity, uh, was able to calculate what he thought according to relativity, the uh, and this is the general theory of relativity, so this is around 1915, um, he was able to calculate what he thought the orbit of Mercury should be, and it turned out that Newton's, you know, classical theory of gravity had been off from the observed uh, orbit by something like uh, 42 uh, arc seconds, um, just a, a way to measure this deviation uh, in in the orbit of, of Mercury. And Einstein... Uh, Performed his calculation and found that he exactly reproduced the actual orbit of Mercury to this uh, level of accuracy. So he got that 42 number. Now that was a post section, which is a completely legitimate thing to do, and that's what gave him this immense confidence.
2: As against prediction, by the way. Correct. As
0: as against the prediction. So then what happened is, um, of course, no one that did not cause everyone to automatically just accept relativity and this is actually 10 years after the special theory of relativity came out in 1905 so relativity in the physics community was still controversial after 1905 even through the 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 teens Um, and so what was the thing that coalesced scientists physicists uh, confidence in this new theory of physics what it was Uh, First off was in 1919, uh, so a couple of years after Einstein had formulated relativity, he predicted that during an eclipse we would observe the positions of the stars to be a little off uh, of where we would expect them to be uh, if we understood light as behaving like classical mechanics would suggest that it would behave. So, and he made a specific prediction about how the positions of the stars would be shifted by a specific amount. And uh, he did this before 1919, when uh, when, this eclipse, when a particular eclipse was observed um, and the data came in exactly matching uh, Einstein's prediction. And that, and other moments, so that was just kind of one early episode, but there have been literally hundreds of separate totally independent tests, if not thousands, of the the predictions of this theory, and you make a prediction, uh, you actually do the test, and you compare. And a theory like relativity has passed so many of these tests; it's it's uh, overwhelmingly established as describing something essential in in reality. And the, the the problem with climate science. Oh wait, let
2: me just jump in, ju- jump yeah. in one second uh, to say something that occurred to me about this, which is that this this just seems like the perfect embodiment of a of a persuasive movement because it in the sense of it it's convincing that people are first of all persuading themselves to an incredibly high degree of certainty and then they are explaining it to other people they're not and their focus is not on here hey here's a political policy and, oh, by the way, everything, all the science behind it is completely certain and you should believe it. And if you don't, you're a denier and you don't believe in science. No, it's just, here's what, get really clear on what we believe, have reasons for it, and then explain it to people. And then, I don't know of any political implications for relativity, but if there were, the, the persuasive movement wouldn't be focused on that aspect. They'd be focused on, let's give you clarity and let's give you explanation, and that's it.
0: Right, and a, a critical point here is that no one was asking for relativity. Uh, there was no preconceived desire to have some new ideas about, uh, you know, what would happen when when uh, masses would move close to the speed of light, or some new ideas about how what what is the nature of gravity. No one was really asking for these before Einstein first started formulating this stuff in, in 1905. Um, in particular, no one was asking for the kind of revolution that he created. And so the, the physics establishment was properly very conservative. They were like, this is a radical new idea, and we're not, we're not just going to buy it. We're, in fact, highly skeptical of it, and it's the onus is on you to show us a, a comparably overwhelming set of evidence that would lead us to accept this radical new idea. Um, and and that's the essential point that when you have something that's really radical you need a, you have a very high bar about the level of evidence uh, that qualifies as making that rad- radical idea even plausible much less a matter of you know high levels of certainty
2: so not a contrast to climate
0: right so uh, climate science is really marked by a almost total lack of independent predictions that they make that can be tested. Uh, So because it's this phenomenon which is global in nature and uh, supposed to not really have any direct evidence that occurs on a kind of a a year or two year or even five year time scale, um, but the the evidence is supposed to only accumulate over decades, um, there's essentially no way and it's kind of convenient for them, there's, there's essentially no way to have a large number of independent tests of these extremely complicated uh, and, and weighty ideas that they have. So now I like to, uh, to, to bring an analogy that, um, that, was, uh, that was pointed out by Nate Silver um, in his book, The Signal and, and the Noise. Um, about uh, contrasting climatologists with meteorologists. So meteorologists are the guys who make weather predictions kind of on the like, you know, a week out, they'll predict whether it's gonna be raining or not. And uh, they, since kind of computer models first started up in, in the climate world that, and these were models that meteorologists were using, you know, all the way probably back in the 60s and, and since then, These were models that were trying to do very uh, much narrower um, tasks, just predict what's the weather going to be like in five days or ten days. And they have exhibited over the last 30 years a completely systematic improvement in their their ability to predict what weather is going to be like over, say, a five-day timescale, and you can observe it. The the predictions that you get by your, your weatherman on the news now are, observably, are noticeably better than they were 20 years ago. Um, and this is because they built these models and every five days or so they have a new totally independent test of whether the model was doing the right thing or not. And when you iterate this you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 times over five day periods, you learn a hell of a lot about what are the important effects you need to capture in your model. Climatologists like I said, essentially have one single period uh, over which from the time that they started their theorizing um, to kind of about the present day, they essentially have one 20-ish, 15-ish year period that they can make a single prediction that they can test against reality. And that prediction in, in conventional terms is just how much the temperature has gone up or down over that period. And of course, uh, if you yeah, actually, the, the
2: average temperature around the, the world. A, right, the
0: average global temperature. So insofar as that's even like a meaningful thing to theorize about. Uh, but that is the one thing that they've made, uh, kind of that they've they focused their whole effort on making a definitive prediction around. Um, and the fascinating thing, of course, which is now common knowledge, is that over the last 15 years, since the, the, the hype machine on global warming is really uh, amped up, um, and these guys have kind of had this period to, to register their prediction and see what happens. Their their prediction has been totally off. So the the observed temperatures, as we know, have been essentially flat over the last 15 years, whereas they had predicting them to to go up precipitously. And so they had one chance. Um, their their performance has constituted a miserable failure. Um, and uh, and even if, even if they were successful, frankly, even if temperatures had gone up, that would certainly increase their credibility in my eyes. But um, it, it's certainly a big demerit that they've been totally off. But nevertheless, it's still just a single test. And that's what fundamentally differentiates it from really solid areas of science like physics or meteorology. Um, or all of the, the other sciences that we're more accustomed to, which have opportunities for repeated, large numbers of repeated, genuinely independent tests that you can perform on the same theory to determine, because if, if your theory is, in a non-trivial way, passing a bunch of independent tests that, that gives you some really good indication that the theory is getting at something correct, um, and we just don't have this opportunity for climate models.
2: Well, and there's, I mean, there's also, Huge debate and challenges historically with its its attempt to post-dick thing. I mean, the whole hockey stick phenomenon, where the whole medieval warm period was tried to erase. They tried to erase it out of existence because it was inconsistent with their view that CO2 is the primary driver of temperature.
0: Right. So they it's not like all the data in the past, you know, up to say the year 2000, were somehow consistent with this idea, and they've just failed on this one production. They have a really tough job to do because their theory is inconsistent with uh, a good amount of historically observed temperature data. Um, so, you know, their job is pretty tough, and they're failing at it. Uh,
2: well, I'm going to. I'm making a note to myself. I want to talk about. You mentioned in passing the idea of whether it's meaningful to talk about global temperature. I want to. want to talk about that in a little bit, but let's just staying on on AR5. So given this this failure so essentially there's been one test which would not be anywhere near adequate enough and i don't think there's been any test of all of the derivative claims they make which are the important ones in terms of what this increase in global temperature means in terms of dramatically harming human life i don't see any evidence that they have any proof that that would be a bad thing to go up by a degree but they haven't they've failed even their most their crudest test well you would imagine they would be repentant or apologetic, or it's it's suspicious that I see on my Rolling Stone and other places, final proof. And I look at the article, case closed.
0: Yeah, it's really, you know, as you say it, it it, uh, it kind of, um, it, it puts into my mind this picture of, you know, a paranoid person. Now, if you have some kind of paranoid fantasy about something and you're saying that, you know, the government is following me and, and you know, these guys are constantly... Uh, trying to interfere with my life, and and it's not actually the case, you're, you're not, you know, the, the NSA isn't really doing that, let's just suppose. Um, uh, it, and, and as the evidence, as your failed predictions about all these things that uh, are are going to happen to you as they mount up, the paranoid, what is his response? It's to get more definitive, to, to be more strident, and that's precisely what they're doing. So as the evidence rolls in that there's a serious problem with how they're they're modeling climate, their response has been to go in 2007 from a a uh, reported uh, 90% certainty in this uh, you know man caused catastrophe that's going to happen to a 95% certainty.
2: Well, but it's not even it's not see it's I think it's even worse than that because I forget the exact wording, but it's it's in. Man is responsible for most of the observed warming, or something like that. It's it's even this equivocation we've talked about a lot of times about how the the political goal. I mean, it's really about a political. The the political goal is the same thing all the other environmentalist projects have, which is to shut down development in one form or another. The the particular political goal is to dismantle the fossil fuel industry, and then all of the uh, and with that as the end, quote unquote, science is the means. And the way they do that is is often they will just introduce very general and vague things such as the average temperature has gone up and act like that's a proof of their political conclusion when it's no such thing. And when they say 90 to 95 percent certainty, it's of a claim that has absolutely no implication that it would be good to shut down the fossil fuel industry um, versus if we were there were really like a global Al Gore, Bill McKibben type feared inferno where you would at least more move now that you wouldn't think primarily in terms of shutting down the industry but you might say let's have a big scale up of, of nuclear so i just think it's important that even they're they're deliberately cl- they want you to think that the political conclusion is certain but they're using a much more mild conclusion and claiming certainty about it and they're they're deliberately equivocating so it's it's so dishonest and then the the more mild claim is itself dishonest
0: Right. That's a great point. When you when you actually look at the exact claim that they're attributing the certainty level to, um, it is a more mundane claim. And by the time it gets filtered through the kind of activist journalists or even just the unobservant journalists, what you get is this sense that there is a 95 percent certainty level in catastrophe. And there are many steps along that argument that they've simply failed to fill in.
2: Again, it just keeps, the more I think about this, the more just we have to make a distinction between what the confidence is in a given scientific claim, in which case we want to really precisely understand what that is, versus confidence in political action, which one can think about scientifically, but in, involves the integration of so many different fields, including economics and anthropology, and, and it's just a very deliberate manipulation to to use the prestige of science to feign certainty with dramatic political conclusions. So let's see. So we have we have AR-5. There was a mild test. The test was failed. How concretely was that is that done in AR-5? I mean, because if it's an assessment report, you'd think that the state of global temperature since the last report would be
0: a pretty big item. Right, and, and that's the really the interesting thing about what AR5 is. Um, now, we're focusing here on what naturally would be the thing you'd wanna focus on. Well, we've had a number of years since the last report. We've had, uh, we've had 15 or so years since, um, since people have been making these very strident claims about global warming catastrophe. Um, and you would think, okay, over these 15 years, have these models worked or not? That claim, that, that whole issue is in fact the thing that's, that's I would say sidestepped uh, away from by the bulk of AR5. Uh, and so you, you have some comments about this that were buried you know, in some uh, section in, the, in this huge document. Um, but the, the real, kind of the, the honest appraisal of what's been going on for the last fifteen years is is kind of disguised and uh, another interesting aspect of this is that if you look in uh, previous drafts of AR5 you have there's a, a very distinct graph in one of the in, in one of the drafts that shows the uh, a comparison between observed temperatures and what the model projections were over the last 15 years, and it's very clear that the observed temperatures were well outside of the range, the, were were distinctly below the entire range of variation uh, that these models put out. Um, this graph was excised from the final version of the report. Uh, so, and it was replaced with another graph in which magically the observed temperatures are well within the projected ranges of variability according to these models. And this is kind of a mystery. Uh, currently, we don't know all the details on how uh, this the the graph in the draft was was changed into this other graph that came out in the final version. Um, but it it actually connects with one important point about these climate models, which is probably not generally understood, and that's that the climate models do not accurately uh, project the absolute level of temperature over recent history. They're in fact, when you run these climate models, um, they tend to be a degree or two Celsius off of uh, what the actual observed temperatures are. Um, And this is just a a glaring indication that the models themselves are not fully adequate and not not fully predictive and one should not fully rely on the level of scientific understanding uh, that goes into them about the dynamics of the climate. Uh, Keep in mind that the entire uh, global warming trend over the last hundred years has been of the order of a degree Celsius. So the, the climate models are off in terms of their predictions for the absolute level of temperatures by more than the entire observed global warming trend. Um, but so, so what this means is that there are finesse elements in even generating these so-called projections. And, and that's that you have to, after the fact, you have to kind of uh, adjust some fudge parameters in the model uh, to get them to calibrate Better to recent temperatures. What do you mean what do you mean you have to? Well, you don't have to, but in order to make a a graphic which compares the temperature projections of the models with observed temperatures, you need to kind of calibrate the model so that in the period right before the the model starts running over the, the projection period. So let's say you want to project temperatures from 98 to, to 2012, you have to calibrate the model. Over some period, say just before ninety-eight, so that the the model and the observed temperatures start off at the beginning at the same place.
2: But and so, you, uh, so is it that is it that even in terms of even in terms of after the fact, the models simulate higher temperatures in say nineteen ninety-eight than actually occurred.
0: Um, what do you mean after the fact?
2: Well, I just mean I mean we have we have you know, going forward and going back. And I guess,
0: right. so let's so say you're,
2: you're making the model in 97, which I think they came out with an assessment report. So you well, not- so
0: let me be clear. What's happening in these models is that they're projecting many decades of uh, of temperature change, right? And depending upon which observed historical temperatures you kind of calibrate it to so that you you fudge the model in one direction or another. So it matches a certain Uh, you know, historical period for the absolute level of temperature it predicts, then you can look at, say, the next period that you didn't calibrate to and see what the model says will happen. Mm -hmm. So if you calibrate it so that they match up, say, in the year 98, then you can kind of compare apples to apples about what the what the uh, projection is for 2012. Um, But the point is that that calibration itself is kind of an iffy business. It's it's not, um, there are multiple ways to do it. If you go exactly to 98, which which temperatures do you calibrate to? There are a lot of different variables in there. And so it seems like by messing around with those fudge, factor, fudge factors that determine what set of historical temperatures the model was calibrated to, you can kind of make it appear as if uh, recent data, the absolute level of recent temperatures was in line with the variability that the climate models predicted. But this is the essential thing. The real question because of the, um, the kind of imprecision of these models, the real question is not what's the absolute level of temperature, uh, which is hard to get from these models. The real question is what is the trend that the model predicts over the last 15 years? And the best, kind of way of, of putting this is that there was a, um, a, a, a group that got together uh, under the name of uh, CMIP, the Coupled Model Intercomparison Project. And what they wanted to do was take all of kind of the, the, the main climate models and attempt to generate a set of simulations that would reflect kind of our state-of-the-art knowledge supposedly of the climate. And so what they did is they, they projected 114 different uh, simulations of the climate over a multi-decade period. And what they found was that um, when you look at the trend of, of temperatures from 98 to 2012, out of the 114 total simulations, 11, uh, 111 of them predicted a higher trend from 98 to 2012 than the observed trend. So we are literally, the the climate model's reality is in the third percentile of what the climate models were projecting. And that's, so what you would expect if you built these models, um, and the models obviously there's some variability, there's some uncertainty in them, you would expect that reality would fall somewhere around the 50th percentile. Maybe it's, you know, 40, maybe it's, 65, it would be somewhere in that ballpark, right? We are in the third percentile. So the, that is evidence that there are systematic effects in the climate models which are just not being captured, which are either totally excluded or just quantitatively wrong in the climate models.
2: There, there must be some function that you know of that I, that I don't in terms of figuring out how unlikely that is,
0: that's just chance that you yes, would end up in the third percentile? Right. It's, it's extremely unlikely. So, I mean, it depends on the details of how these tests were carried out to actually get you a number of what you would want to ask is, um, given that this is, these are the observed temperatures, what is the probability that, that these models actually reflect reality? And that in any reasonable assessment of that, that would have to be a number, a percentile, like in the single digits. Um, uh, I. I of course, they don't compute this number uh, in any way uh, in, in, uh, in AR5, at least in any honest way, because the number would have to be a very low number.
2: I was trying to think of just a you know, normal activity that you would expect to even out. So let's, ta- let's say I just take at random from the phone book um, a thousand people, and I average and I figure out the average IQ. You know, right. If the average IQ is 160, it just seems insanely unlikely that, that that was really a random test. Like the likelihood of that happening is, is essentially zero. That it's, right. just a, that it's just
0: by chance that I picked all geniuses. Right. And, ex- and what it would mean is that there's some systematic thing in the way you're picking the names that's, that's totally skewing things. And in, in the same way, there's some systematic way in which they're representing the dynamics of the climate that's skewing things away from what actually happens.
2: I want to go to this issue of, of global temperature because I think in this whole debate, one thing that rarely happens and certainly doesn't happen enough is is questioning premises. And I think there's a trend of of taking these very abstract concepts and oversimplifying them. So my sentence is that when... People hear the term global warming, they think of it as their either their local town or even their or like a room, and it just keeps going up in temperature, and at some point, it's going to be too uncomfortable and won't be able to live. So there's there's this very local analogy uh, of what this is versus a globe in which it's insanely hot but even more insanely cold probably in all kinds of different places. And you choose where to live uh, in part based on which, you know, where on the spectrum you like that. And then that whole spectrum on average in different places to different degrees has averaged out to a one degree change uh, over a very long period of time, which you certainly can't notice yourself. And yet it's the way it's framed as, oh, it's global warming. The temperature has gone up. It seems like this, this universal thing uh, that we're, that we're going to suffer from so I'm curious in your your perception of this.
0: Well, yeah, and so you pointed out one aspect of that which is that it's it's warmer or colder depending on where you are on the planet and you move to a new city and the temperatures are totally different and yet you don't view it as some catastrophe for you. Um, another aspect of this is it's kind of funny when you look at these uh, temperature graphs that you see, um, Their you know yearly averaged global temperatures. Um, well, what would make them look really funny is if instead of doing yearly averages, there were finer grain graphs, and they actually plotted it say month by month. And what you would see is this insignificant little trend that's occurred over the last thirty years, compared to huge variations up and down from one month to the next, or really one season to the next. Um, so. A graph like that is more honest in a certain way because it gives you a scale. It tells you here is the variability you yourself are completely accustomed to, these huge uh, ups and downs within the year on on global temperature, much less local temperature in any any particular locale. Um, so that's the scale of variability that you're used to, and then you have this tiny little kind of perturbative trend that just makes a minor shift to that huge. Kind of seasonal oscillation that you see. So it, it's really like the the language in which they phrase this is designed to kind of exclude the obvious indications that there's a whole other scale that we're used to here, where temperatures vary by you know five, ten degrees over a year in certain places Celsius, um, and people just view it as as completely normal. Um, you know even even say a a 20 degree variation in temperature at a given locale is not unheard of over over a, you know so you know a 30 or 40 degree variation fahrenheit um from one season to, to the next
2: i've i've seen those graphs before but it never occurred to me how how dishonest it is to talk about well let me take it from this perspective if you know, at CIP we're always trying to look at things from a humanistic or a human perspective in terms of what is the actual impact of this on man. So there's nothing inherently I mean the climate inherently changes. Um and if man affects it, that doesn't mean it's bad or good. It's just we assess it in relationship to human beings in the full context of, of everything else, including our, our capacity to adapt. If we're thinking about temperature, even even on a global scale as it pertains to human beings, it's it's a certain on its own, it seems essentially useless in terms of explaining it to somebody to focus on something that is averaged over seasons and that in no way reflects the nature of our experience. In these graphs, people, most people don't even see that it's one degree. It just it goes way up. So it, it really, and, and I think their frame of reference is just their own thermometer. So it just seems as if, oh my gosh, my, my thermometer is going way up versus, no, my thermometer is going up and down all the time and if depending on where I am, it might like the the you know, on average it's it's a tiny bit more up and that and that's it. But then if, if it were held that way, nobody nobody would care unless you could show some sort of, you know, systematic effect on sea levels that was disastrous and these other things. But I think since they generally can't, uh, they they like to make the warming seem dramatic even though it's literally
1: imperceptible.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, they, they rely on a certain abstractness to the whole thing, a separation between the, the language they're speaking and things that people actually know about for people to kind of be sufficiently disoriented by the technical nature of the discussion and just kind of get this ominous sense that there's something terrible happening without kind of having any concrete idea of what that would entail.
2: So if we're approaching the issue fresh, what are the main things we actually want to look at if we're if we're concerned about you know the future of let's say the livability of our you know ultimately we experience it as weather, but the livability of our surroundings. what are the sorts of things we look at i mean leaving and leaving aside implications for political policy because it's good to know those sorts of things uh no matter what I mean if you're a farmer, it's good to know it's good to be able to predict twenty years out, but what are the types of things to look at? given that the global mean temperature anomaly does not seem like the, the major thing to look at?
0: Uh, you mean just purely in climate terms? What are some of the things that we'd want to understand? That and are
2: relevant. What? I mean, I can imagine, like, sea level rise would be something where, sure. if we're rising quickly, that would be a big problem, versus global mean temperature anomaly, even if it had gone up as much as the novel, the model
0: said, I, I wouldn't regard that as much cause for alarm. Right. Um, so things like the... Uh, sea level rise so I mean if you look at sea level rise over you know a hundred year time scale um, there's no evidence whatsoever that there's any unprecedented uh, effect that's going on in the last you know 30 40 50 years um, in fact the the rise has been a really remarkably kind of straight line that's just um, presumably a uh, you know a, a result of the fact that in the late 1800s we kind of had a temperature minimum, and we've been coming out of it since then. Uh, so sea level is one kind of thing you'd look at. I mean, you you, you could look at you know people love to um, to uh, show you know movies about uh, big chunks of, of Arctic ice collapsing and things like that. But you it is legitimate to look at something like the the variation in uh, ice levels in in the Arctic. And there are just like kind of the seasonal variations that you see in temperature. There are longer term variations in, in the amount of ice over the Arctic that are just enormous compared to any kind of trend that we could attribute to um, man-caused global warming. Okay.
2: Well, j- just to get back to the, the point about the connection of life. So, okay. So it's it's sea levels. But then that—that's—I mean, sea levels, and then there's a question of of at what rate are rising sea levels a problem? Because imagine if it—if it rose over you know slowly over a hundred-year period, there's a lot of human beings can do to adapt. If rises on a, a one-year period, it's a big—you know—it's a big uh, problem to deal with. But it, it's interesting to me that uh, in terms of values and the focus, when we hear about this stuff in the news, it's almost always the ice melting or the polar bear going out of existence as an end in itself not because it's going to drown us in the cities but we this today's configuration of species is sacred or at least it's sacred qua man should not be able to affect anything or the amount of ice in the arctic is sacred and i'm curious what what you think of this emphasis on focusing on these things as ends in themselves versus scientifically evaluating their relationship to man
0: Sure. I mean, in the context they're coming from, they're trying to find indications of a catastrophe. And so they just want to find uh, phenomena in the climate that seem extreme or abnormal. Um, But I I definitely agree that to the extent that this has supposedly been going on for 20 years, um, uh, at least 20 years, you know, obviously they're, they're postulating it's been going on since industrialization, but To the extent that they've kind of claimed that there's been kind of crisis level activity that's been going on for, uh, you know, 10 or 20 years, one would like to see some actual demonstrable um, effects of it. And, you know, the the data is extremely sparse that there's some actual uh, event that's that's objectively connected to to man-caused climate change that's that's abnormal in any way over the last twenty years it, it's just
2: interesting to me how it it there's this constant running together of things that would impact human beings if they're true and things that in no obvious way would impact human beings if they're true and they're all f- uh, they're all funneled under this catch all the environment and they're all used to support this political conclusion which going back to the beginning is is the real starting point of all of this stuff. I mean, everything is just, there's, we need this, we need this kind of political policy. We need the government to control this kind of thing. And then we're just gonna throw everything on the kitchen table to do it. And if, if now, well, let's, let's, we could talk about oceans for a second, um, you know, no matter what happens, this political conclusion stays completely fixed. And then, if they say, well, the ap- atmosphere is warming up, okay, it's not warming up, but the ocean, the deep oceans are warming up. It's just everything is malleable except, f- and, and everything is fair game if it in some way pushes you toward this political conclusion versus somebody who looks at all the evidence about what's impacting human life and from that draws a political conclusion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And indeed, I mean, one has to look at the, to, to get in into- the, an assessment of uh, the process that goes into creating things like AR5, one has to ask, well, what's their response? to This obvious fact that they these models have failed to capture the the elephant uh, the elephant in the room here, which is the the uh, pause so called in global temperature increase over the last fifteen years. And so what they'll say, and what they say in AR5, is that oh, well, this was just a result of the fact that all this extra heat was transferred to the deep ocean. Um, And uh, they'll admit that the climate models don't take into account that phenomenon and that's why they can kind of blame the failure of the models over the last 15 years on this effect uh, with the implication that it's somehow this one-off thing that, okay, once that's done then back on course, We're we're still hooked up for catastrophe. But of course, the problem is that that's, that's one major effect that the climate models don't capture. One, it's not at all clear that it's a one-off effect. Two, there are, there are a number of, of known systematic effects that are fundamental climate drivers, uh, things like El Nino, uh, and, which is just basically a warming of uh, water off of South America that happens every couple of years. Um, and that has a, a quite noticeable effect on global mean temperatures. Um, other things like a, a similar phenomenon in the Atlantic Ocean, those things are just not modeled. They're, they're completely ignored. They're not accounted for by, by the climate models. Um, and things which we know to have major effects, at least in the short term, on global temperatures. Um, and, and we just don't know uh, how much those and other even unknown effects uh, what kind of systematic differences these uh, these phenomena would, would make to long-term climate projections, and so they still ridiculously uh, assert they have 95% confidence in their um, their ability to attribute past warming to to man. Um, but they they admit that they're just fundamental things in the climate, things which have big effects, things which are causing their projections over the last 15 years to be wrong that they simply don't account for in their models.
2: I find all of this really interesting and also frustrating in the sense of it, our whole culture is so obsessed with this phenomenon of climate. Now, I don't think it's very much thought about, but still it's just and particularly climate well, climate as caused by us, allegedly, but, but absent any adaptation, whereas the most obviously or the most crucially important aspect of everything is man's ability to use his mind to make his life better in any climate. That's been... That's the unique and precious thing that's arisen in the last 300 years. Climate has been changing and uh, never been particularly hospitable to human life in the sense of having allowing you a long, healthy life, uh, you know, with a very high probability. And yet the whole focus is just on, oh, are the sea levels this, or are they that, or is the temperature point one, point one or point two? And nobody talks about in the context of climate human adaptation, and then more broadly just the the amazingness of human industrialization.
0: Right. I mean, if you kind of compare the science of human adaptation, which basically we call economics, uh, to the, the current state of climate science, I, I would say the status of, of basic kind of economic theory of growth is far, far better understood and much more um, predictable in certain large-scale qualitative ways than the climate is. Uh, so we know that uh, freedom and division of labor and specialization will over time result in massive economic growth now we can't say for a given country over a 20year period uh, you know whether that whether freeing up their economy and, and letting uh, the division of labor uh, operate is going to result in yearly growth or 10% yearly growth or 3% year. But we know over a long time period, it's going to be positive and it's going to accumulate to a huge amount. Um, On the other hand, for climate, we don't even know whether the the consequences of, say, uh, an additional degree increase in global temperatures would be net positive or negative. Um, So there's this tremendous uncertainty uh, on the climate side, the side that we have, very little systematic understanding of, and there's this very high certainty about uh, on the economic side about what would be the consequences of paralyzing an economy by major macro controls on one of the most essential branches of industry um, so there's really no comparison there and and there's only there's an obvious conclusion to be drawn from it, which is that you can't strangle the freedom that we know will produce. Huge economic gains over a hundred-year period, um, when on the other side of the ledger there is just massive uncertainty.
2: I like thinking of the science. I like that idea of thinking of the science of of adaptation as primarily economics. I never never put that together, and it 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 allows a nice a a nice juxtaposition of essentially we could think of we ultimately care about man's well-being. In the climate that's that's our standard of value at least at cip and i think properly it should be everyone's and if you care about that you have to look at two things one is the climate and then two is our ability to adapt to it and what we know about one is tiny compared to what we know about two and what we know what we have every reason to suspect about the power of trying to do something about one versus the power of trying to do something about two is dramatically different so just all the all the evidence is make sure that two is really really good and yet they're they're trying to somehow optimize the climate in this arbitrary way and destroy this, our ability to adapt uh,
0: yeah uh, yeah I, I, I mean uh, well I'm not sure what the question was there but it wasn't a question it was a rant okay
2: uh, no no but it was just it, I would it was—just it was, that light bulb went off in terms of thinking of, of the two things. There, there are two elements to an equation, basically. There's the climate and then climate adaptation. And thinking of the second one as economics, I find clarifying in terms of, of knowing of, of— because if we're going to have an equation, we have to know the certainty level of each and then we need to know the magnitude of each. And everything we know about the magnitude of climate changes is that they're not anywhere near the magnitude of different economic policies. And our, our confidence level in, in knowing about climate and thus being able to make intelligent decisions if, if somehow we could affect it is very low versus economics, which is very high. So it's one is higher magnitude and higher certainty.
0: Right. And I guess an important additional point here is that we know with economic certainty that the level of regulation that would be necessary to achieve the goals of, uh, of the environmentalist activists uh, would be abso- absolutely strangulating uh, to, to industry, to production, and to human well-being. And uh, this is not something that they, um, I think, if you, if you really scratch the surface of it, this is not something that, that they fail to understand either. Um, and they're just content with that. But if you if you have any kind of sincere interest in human well being over decades and centuries, then the kind of economic strangulation that they're prescribing is just a non starter. It's just an indication that their goal is is not human well being. It must be something else.
2: And even if they talk about oh it's just oh it's just a one percent decline in growth, you've you've talked about that's to just accept something like that is insane uh, like except a 1% cut in growth
0: right a 1% decline in growth over a hundred years I mean you can do the math but it's huge amounts of wealth you know it compounds to effectively something like a doubling um, you know even more than a doubling over a century of, uh, um, of the, the amount of wealth that human beings have at their disposal to make their lives more enjoyable. Um, and if, if you just contemplate what it would be like to to cut in half the amount of wealth in the world, the kind of misery that would create, that is what one percent reduction in growth over a hundred years causes.
2: Uh, yeah, and this to to call this one percent would be bizarre in terms of what the, the types of things are. I don't wouldn't even know what percentage to put on these kinds of, of because in in places like Germany and Spain, you've already hurt prosperity by more than 1% through these very mild iterations of uh, the green energy experiments. but versus trying to do a whole replacement operation with technologies that don't work at all in terms of in terms of powering an economy, let alone work economically.
0: Yeah, indeed. I mean, what they're proposing is, is I mean, if you look at, for instance, Bill McKibben's uh, desire to... Re- reduce the amount of carbon emissions by, uh, what was it, 85% or 95% something?
2: 95% over the next f- couple decades.
0: 95%. Yeah, I mean, that entails such an extreme level of economic regress that it, it's just kind of putting us back into the Stone Age.
2: All right. Well, we've, we've gone on a lot while. Any any final points you think people should take away from AR5 or this broader issue?
0: Uh, just that it's, you know, it's an indication when uh, a group of people are confronted with the obvious failure of a very speculative, complicated intellectual effort that they've been undertaking for a number of years, when they have a single major test performed on it and they just fail miserably on that test. As you said before, I think the essential point is if the, if the, the process, the institution, is built around objectivity, you would expect a certain kind of response, at least an acknowledgment, not it being buried, not a, a, a total rejiggering of the goalpost to try and disguise the result, and that's exactly what we saw. So, it, it's a real methodological indication that there's a problem with these institutions that have been created and their products, like the AR5.
2: And if people I encourage people to just look at, at different reports, I mean not, not just mainstream media, but different reports and just which explicitly say that, that this data that there's just there's discussions by all the political types about yeah, let's let's subordinate this, let's not emphasize this. And this is if if we think about just what a scientific movement does if it's going to stress anything, it's going to stress the basic data from which conclusions are to be drawn versus this has, I don't know how many pages about all sorts of arbitrary speculation that it has. And yet it can't be bothered to feature prominently, probably the most important data set that is new. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Eric. Fun as always.
1: Thank you. Thanks again to Eric for being on the program. Always a pleasure. Since we went uh, long, I'll just go right to the usual close. Uh, if you need to contact me for any reason, love mail, hate mail, questions, comments, email me at industrialprogress.net Next week, we'll be back with another great guest, another great show, another great topic. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power
0: Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.